What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, Merry Christmas to you. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, wherein we answer questions from folks just like you all over the world, not just here in America, but literally all over the world who have questions about the Catholic faith. Not going to be taking your phone calls today. We're doing a special mailbag edition of our program on this uh, day after Christmas. I'm Tom Price, along with our producer, Charles Berry, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Merry Ver- Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. You know, we we want to remind people, you just don't have to get rid of your Christmas tree yet. You don't have to take it down. You don't have to put away your nativity sets because the Christmas season goes all the way back to the baptism of the Lord. Right. Which is when? Oh, golly. The baptism of the Lord? Yep. The baptism of the Lord would be, um, that would be when he was 30, right? Uh, no, I mean the, the liturgical feast. The liturgical feast goes eight days, doesn't it? Okay, yeah. Does that sound about right that to you? That sounds about right, yeah. Okay, and, and anyway, it goes way, way, way back. <laughs> this is hilarious. I think we are two different wavelengths. David is just looking at me like, well, I'm laying it down. Are you going to pick it up or not? That's so funny. All right. Uh, well, let me lead off here with something very interesting that, that a lot of people have asked over the years when they're, when they're trying to throw a monkey wrench at uh, Catholics, uh, figuratively, let's hope. Is Christmas really just a pagan holiday that Christians co-opted? Um, I'm not even sure the question is coherent as it stands, right? So is it just a pagan holiday that Christians co-opted? Well, there there have been pagan holidays that Christians have employed that date and said, you know, we society used to celebrate something pagan on this day. Uh-huh. We don't like that, so we're going to celebrate something Christian instead. And what's wrong with that? Right, exactly. You know, I mean, it, it's like— you. you uh, all over Italy, you can find churches built on top of pagan shrines. And I remember being in Assisi several years ago and visiting the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, so Holy Mary on top of Minerva. And so mm. you have an indigenous pagan population that would worship Minerva. Here come the Christians, and they say, well, we've been using this space to worship Minerva. Why don't we use it now to honor the Blessed Virgin instead? Right. So, like, why is that a bad thing? Why is that a bad thing? So, yes, Christmas uh, d- does correspond and, and on the calendar date to a time that pagans uh, uh, celebrated a pagan holiday, but we Christianized it. That's what Catholics do. They move into a culture, and they, they, they take cultural forms, and they Christianize them. Well, there you go. Thanks so much uh, for that uh, common objection. We do appreciate that. Our producer, Charles, points out that uh, Christmas season goes until after Epiphany, which would be uh, this year, Sunday, January the 7th. So I, I guess I was thinking of the octave of Christmas, oh, okay. which is right. uh, which is slightly different. Let's let's get on to a different topic here before I fall Quickly. apart completely. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is from Gary, who says, I'm Catholic. And I'm pretty sure God exists, but I 
have this nagging uncertainty about God's existence. I feel abnormal in this sense. How can I be certain that God exists? And can you recommend any good books to help me with this? And again, that's from Gary. Yeah, thanks. So first of all, um, you're not abnormal. That's the, the main point I want to make. You are not abnormal. Okay. So the, the, the anxiety that perhaps God doesn't exist or that perhaps God is absent from your experience mm-hmm. is, in fact, canonized in sacred scripture uh, in multiple places, the two of them in particular, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, but also Psalm 88, where the psalmist uh, is crying out to God for help, and help seems to not be coming, and everything is turning against him, and he feels utterly bereft and, and cut off from the divine and the human, and life is meaningless. I'm in. Now, that's the real human sentiment. We find it, uh, uh, voice is given to that sentiment in Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's Catholic doctrine, right? Yeah. If it's yeah, in the yeah. Bible, it was inspired by God. And yet the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire the sacred author of Psalm 88 to give vent to his feelings of alienation from God. Um, uh, I'm going to give you a couple other more contemporary examples. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, probably the most celebrated saint of the 20th century, or one of them to be sure. Um, We now know, after her death, from the publication of her letters and memoirs to her spiritual director, struggled mightily with the fear that perhaps God didn't exist, or that if he that if he did exist, he existed and didn't care a fig about Mother Teresa. Mm. That that was what her inner life consisted in, and and habitually apparently for for multiple decades. Um, Therese of Lisieux, who is actually a doctor of the Church, and she's a doctor of the Church because of her book, The Story of the Soul, which is a classic of Catholic spirituality, expresses in that text. Uh, a significant period of time in her own life when she had serious doubts about the existence of God. That's a doctor of the church and a saint. So for you to wonder if you are somehow outside the mainstream or if you're abnormal, not at all. I mean, this, this is a sentiment that sacred scripture and, and saints from the heights of the church's spiritual tradition also have, have experienced. Okay. In terms of intellectual arguments for the existence of God, a really good one would be Five Proofs of the Existence of God by Edward Fazer, F-E-S-E-R. Okay. Very good. And one more here as we're going to break. This is from Marticia. What a great name, Marticia, who says, What is the name of the homiletics book that you have mentioned in the past? Yeah, not a book, not a book. Um, it's a publication from the Vatican meant to help priests in the preparation of their homilies. It's simply called the homiletical, excuse me, the homiletical directory. And you can find the entire thing online on the Vatican, on the Vatican website. Okay, which is uh, vatican.va. VA. Very good. And uh, there, there's also a magazine called, isn't it uh, Homiletics and Pastoral Review? The homiletical and Pastoral Review is a, is a, yeah, it's a periodical meant to help priests in the preparation of their homilies and also their pastoral ministry. All right. And uh, Marticia, thank you so much uh, for checking in with us. We're doing a special mailbag edition of Called Communion on this day after Christmas. So uh, can't call in. Uh, we'll be taking your calls very soon, though. And uh, along with, speaking of telephones, along with... Uh, some of these mailbag emails that we're going to be reading. We'll also get a couple of calls from our EWTN listener comment line. We'll sprinkle those in here and there throughout the course of today's program. The special mailbag edition of Call to Communion coming right back here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Do stay with us.
Merry Christmas to you from all of us here at EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We're doing a special mailbag edition of our program today. We hope that you can uh, stick around for all the great uh, questions we're going to be answering throughout the course of the show. Not just emails, but we'll also uh, bring bringing in some uh, phone calls that people have jumped in with overnight uh, on the EWTN listener comment line. We'll get to the one of those in just a moment. Here's an interesting uh, question from Nathan, who says, Dr. Andrews, we have a new parish priest who insists that everyone recite the entire responsorial psalm during Mass instead of just the responses. I find this very strange. Wondered if it uh, breaks the rubrics, rubrics of the Novus Ordo. Um, yeah, as far as I know, the, the, the congregation is only supposed to respond with the responses. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, this is a, some kind of private liturgical preference this priest has. I don't think there's anything particularly objectionable about it, it, it unless he make a law out of it and you know threaten to take away your your Lenten fish dinner if you don't comply <laughs> something like that would be over the top but I mean, it's not it's not bad to say the psalm but it's also not normal okay uh, appreciate that thanks so much for your email here's one now from Ricky in Manila in the Philippines we have a lot of radio stations uh, in the Philippines we're very glad that we are there Ricky says I have been meeting regularly with some friends the past four years to share the gospel with nominal Catholic friends. A few folks in the group are members of different evangelical or Protestant churches or denominations. I have noticed that the evangelicals usually refer to verses from the Bible. The Catholics are more liturgical and tradition-based. Very often they claim a theology which is contrary to Catholic theology or the catechism, and they are not open to Catholic teaching. This has challenged me to learn more about the Catholic theology and the early church fathers. What do you recommend I do to build up Christian unity with non-Catholic Protestants in a loving manner rather than creating a debate or combative environment? Again, that's from Ricky in Manila. Okay, thanks, Ricky. I appreciate it. So let me get this straight. The context of this question is that you, you meet on a regular basis with a group of Christians, some nominal Catholics, and uh, and 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 non-Catholics. Yeah. And you described it to share the gospel with them. Mm. Well, I'm not sure what uh, what the nature of the gathering is that would bring them together to listen to you exposit the gospel. Maybe is this a Bible study? Is this a book study? Is this a prayer meeting? I don't really know the context. Uh, and then the question was, what can I do to help build up unity in the body of Christ uh, ecumenically with our Protestant brothers without without being polemical? Well, again, I'd, I'd need a little bit more information. So, like, for example, when your Protestant friends are quoting scriptures at you, are they quoting scriptures at you in a polemical way that mm. is somehow presented as antithetical or opposed to Catholic doctrine? Are you, are you obliged to give a response to that? Um, you know, so all those kinds of things would come into play for me to discern what the right way forward here is. Now, you know, the principles of ecumenism are that we can— we can celebrate, we can fellowship on those things that we have in common. One thing that Protestants and Catholics have in common is sacred scripture. Uh And so there's there's certainly nothing wrong with engaging Protestants over the discussion or veneration of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to run into a difficulty, though, and that is that Protestants have a very idiosyncratic way of interpreting the Bible. And in my judgment, they they interpret it badly. They interpret it wrongly, in a sense, contrary to what Christ intended. Um, and so just saying we're going to agree on the Bible usually isn't enough because because you're going to find out pretty quick that they read the text in a way that is antithetical to Catholic doctrine. Mm. Um, 
so, uh, you know, you can never go wrong with mutual prayer and intercession. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and look, you can have an open and honest discussion about the places where you differ in your understanding of sacred scripture. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want something that's non-controversial, you know, um, m- prayer and, and mutual support uh, is, uh, seems to be pretty non-controversial. That gets the job done. Uh, Ricky, thanks so much for checking in from the Philippines. Let's go to one of those uh, phone calls we received overnight on the EWTN listener comment line. Hi, my name is Preston. I'm calling from Spokane. And my question was, why don't many Catholics talk about Jesus Christ? I have a lot of Catholic friends there, but I never hear them talk about Jesus Christ at all, or the gospel, really. And that always, so just was curious, like, why the emphasis is placed on all these other things, it seems like. And that always baffled me, as it feels like it goes away from the primary purpose of the Bible and the Gospel to bring people to Jesus Christ. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So it's very common among some evangelical Christians uh, to conceive of the Christian life as a kind of ongoing personal dialogue, an interpersonal second-person kind of dialogue with the person of Jesus. And so Jesus appears in that person's consciousness as like, uh, you know, a best friend or an imaginary friend, although not imaginary in this case, just an invisible friend that I take with me that I am in dialogue with, that I believe loves me and died for me, and and I enjoy this kind of intimate personal relationship with Christ that's conceived on those terms. Uh-huh. And, and there's nothing wrong with that from the Catholic point of view, but it is far from the whole point of the Christian life. From a Catholic point of view, the, the main point of the Christian life is not that I have necessarily a a kind of interpersonal, inner dialogue with the character of Christ, uh, the person of Christ, so much as it is that I come to imitate his character and obey his teaching. So, you know, for example, when I read the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Uh most of Christ's teaching there is oriented towards the transformation of the moral life. And some of his major targets that Christ goes after would be things like religious hypocrisy um, and uh, uh, a tribalism and a lack of concern for the poor and the marginalized. And he puts the challenge to his disciples, if you want to be my disciples, you have to obey my teaching and do what I do, which namely, go have table fellowship with sinners, uh, you know, don't let uh, things like purity laws constrain you from helping those that are in need of help, that kind of stuff. And so there's a heavy emphasis on the Catholic in the Catholic tradition on being a disciple of Christ means doing those things, mm. doing the things that he actually commanded. So when he told the disciples to go preach the gospel through all the world, what he said is, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so for a Catholic, you know, like let's say a Catholic is engaged in um, uh, direct social action to care for the poor. Maybe they contribute to a food bank or they, you know, tutor uh, inner city kids that are in deprived circumstances Uh or or whatever it might be. For a Catholic, that is what relationship to Christ looks like to a large extent. That's a big part of what relationship, because that's the way Jesus told us to relate to him, maybe by doing the things he commanded us to do. Secondly, um, for a Catholic, corporate worship is an incredibly important part of Catholic identity and of our relationship to Jesus. And if you you walk into a traditional Catholic church, one of the first things that you notice is the church is very often cruciform in shape. So the very architecture of the church 
recalls the mind to the event of the crucifixion. Yeah. Um, usually there is a, a holy water font when you go in. The purpose of the holy water font, in part, is to remind us of our own baptism. And baptism for a Catholic is the the right by which we are conformed to Christ. Sometimes there will be a baptismal font right there at the front of the church. You walk in, you see it. You are reminded of your baptism and your union with Jesus. We die with Christ in baptism, Paul writes, and are raised again with him to new life. Cast your eye down the nave, look to the end of the church, and you will see, almost always, a crucifix. The image of Christ elevated on the cross for our redemption. They're right in front of you. If you look up and down the sides of the church, you will usually see the stations of the cross, the different events in the passion of Christ as he as he went from from Pilate's judgment uh, to, to the death on the cross, right? There in bold relief, quite literally, on the sides of the church. Yeah. Um, and then the, 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 the center focus of the whole architecture, of course, is the altar where Catholics believe Christ himself is made present through the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus. And so everything about the church service and all the language of the liturgy, all the prayers of the liturgy, all the gestures of the liturgy are oriented to evoking in us an awareness of Christ, especially of his death and resurrection on our behalf, and an active participation in those mysteries. So it is, it is intensely cruciform and Christocentric from beginning to end. And then we leave the Mass and take that conformity to Christ with us and try to live it out in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, St. Francis uh, of Assisi is uh, reputed to have said, um, preach the gospel wherever you go and use words when necessary. And that captures the ethos of, of, of the Catholic thing, right? That words are cheap, actions are dear, and the essence of the Christian life is to conform our life to the character of Christ, to imitate his sacred actions, giving ourselves mm. in love for one another. That is what relationship to Christ looks like. Yeah. Mother Angelica would say, get cracking. Get cracking. Absolutely. Appreciate your phone call to our EWTN listener comment line. We'll get to a few more of those uh, during the hour. It's a mailbag edition of our program today called The Communion here on EWTN. Got a great email from Henry in Nairobi in Africa, in Kenya, who says, Dear Dr. Anders, if someone makes an act of perfect contrition for mortal sin but does not have immediate access to confession, can one receive communion as they wait to get a chance to go for confession? Uh, And uh, does the confidior done with honesty and sincerity at Mass suffice to cleanse one of mortal sin so that one can receive communion with a firm resolution to go for confession afterwards if one did not have the chance to go for confession before Mass? Regards, Henry in Nairobi. Right. Thanks, Henry. I appreciate the question. So the the condition under which a Catholic can safely go to communion uh, without access to sacramental confession would be when there is some kind of great urgency about the matter, like danger of death, Mm. right? Um, You know, I had a discussion with a canon lawyer one time about a a similar situation. Uh, You know, what about incarcerated Catholics, who have no access to the sacrament of confession, but might, because, say, a deacon or someone might bring the Blessed Sacrament, Mm, have access to the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, at least in one canon lawyer's opinion, being in prison constitutes being in danger of death. 
you know. Well, and that yeah. was that was the way that was construed, you wow. know. So there there are circumstances under which a soul can safely go to communion, but if there is a reasonable chance of going to communion in a reasonable length of time, uh then then we are told we must wait until after sacramental uh, confession and absolution to go to holy communion. Well, there you go. Henry, thanks for checking in from Nairobi. Love to hear from people all over the world here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Here's one now from Mark. Dr. Anders, I love your show. Thanks for doing it. My question is as follows. Unlike the apostles who spent quite a lot of time with Jesus, St. Paul naturally did not. Jesus had already been crucified and ascended by the time of St. Paul's conversion. Without living alongside Jesus, the daily lessons, the example that Jesus set, how did St. Paul become so incredibly knowledgeable and prolific about him? Thanks, Mark. Well, what Paul tells us is that what he learned about Christ, he learned from Christ by way of private revelation. Mm, okay. Um, that's exactly what Paul says, right? He doesn't claim to have known Christ according to the flesh. He doesn't claim to have walked with Christ in the Holy Land the way the Twelve did. Uh, but he but he does claim that he saw Christ personally and that Christ revealed things directly to Paul uh, that Paul took to be mysteries, things that had been hidden until, their, until Christ's revelation to St. Paul. And uh, the claim was controversial when Paul made it, as you might imagine, and there were Christians that said, "No, we don't, we don't, we don't go with this Paul guy because he wasn't hanging out with <laughs> Jesus, and he wasn't one of the original twelve, and he certainly wasn't one of the three. So we don't know about that Paul guy." And uh, so Paul went to Jerusalem and he met with Peter, James, and John, and they, as he said, gave him the right hand of fellowship. They validated his apostolic ministry and said, "No, this guy's good. He's he's got the he's got the Peter, Paul, John." Um, uh, seal of approval. Imprimatur. He's, he's got the imprimatur. <laughs> he's good to go. We trust what he has to say. He is an apostle of the Lord. Very good. So that's where we leave that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Here's a uh, Christmas-oriented question. What are your thoughts on Christmas music, Dr. Anders? Do you have any favorite Catholic Christmas songs or hymns that you enjoy singing during this time of the year? You are a singer, after all. Was back in the day, yeah. Kind of, <laughs> voice is kind of gone. I don't sing as much as I used to. Oh, I love Christmas music. I, I, I adore the carols. I mean, I like all the traditional ones. Um, I, I love Little Town of Bethlehem. I love Silent Night. Um, it came up on a midnight clear. I mean, I love all that stuff. I love mm. them. I love them all. I, you know, when my oldest son was very little, I had a my first hymnal kind of hymnal. You know, oh, nice. and I was still Protestant at the time, but you know, Protestants will use a lot of Catholic hymns at Christmas time because they're so pretty, and uh, and it had the words to all these famous hymns, but it had cute little cartoon illustrations, and I I must have sung that thing to to my oldest, you know, hundreds of times, hundreds of times, and uh, it had some Wesleyan hymns in there too, you know, uh-huh. non-Catholic stuff, but not necessarily Christmas. One of them was um, one of my favorite hymns of all time. It's not a Catholic hymn, but it's "Oh for a Thousand Tongues" by Charles Wesley. You know the one, Tom. Right? I might. Go oh, ahead. For a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. That one? Right? I, I know the music. Oh, it's beautiful. I right? don't know the lyrics. It's beautiful. And I used to sing that one to my oldest all the time, and he was a little bitty toddler. You know, he didn't speak perfectly coherent English. And uh, so he couldn't say, oh, for a thousand tongues. Uh-huh. He called that hymn, oh, thousand, like with an F, F-O-U-S-A-N-D. Oh, thousand. And he would say, <laughs> Daddy, sing oh, thousand. Sing oh, thousand. So, yeah, I love them all. That is so sweet. I, I must confess, I, I love all that, uh, but one of my all-time favorites is Carol of the Bells. 
Yes. Do, 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 oh, do, gorgeous. gorgeous. Wish I could think of the lyrics of it, but uh, boy, just that, that really, really uh, does it for me. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much for sending in these uh, Christmas-oriented questions. We'll get to a few more during the course of the program. We're doing a mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We'll get to more emails for you. We'll also get to a few more of those listener comment line calls that came in during the overnight hours. Do stay with us here on EWTN. Hey, Merry Christmas to all of you from all of us here at EWTN Radio and this program called A Communion with Dr. David Anders. As we were mentioning earlier, you you don't have to take that tree down just yet. You may want to wait to put it up next year. I know in our family, we usually put up the tree. How about you, David? We usually put up the tree on Gaudete Sunday, which is the third Sunday of Advent. When do you put yours up? That's a good question. You know, I'm. It's it's whenever I'm told to. Oh, <laughs> good man, good man. <laughs> you have you have learned well, my son. Very good. And, uh, and we'll continue now with uh, a few more of these questions. Here's an email from Marcia in Denver. Marcia says, Acts nine five, after Paul falls from his beast and struck blind, a voice says, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? Saul says, Who art thou, Lord? The voice says, I am Jesus, whom thou art persecuting. It is hard for thee to kick against the goad. Um, mm, What does that mean? The dictionary says a goad is a spear or a prod, such as a cow prod, to maneuver animals with force. Please clarify this statement kick against the goad. It's hard for me to comprehend. Many thanks, Marcia. Yeah, thanks. So here's how I've always taken that, that Christ is trying to accomplish something in human history uh-huh. with, with the establishment of the church and the advance of the kingdom of God. And here, here is Paul working at cross-purposes to Christ. Mm. And, and that's, what it, that's what he means when he says that you're kicking against the goad. I mean, Paul thinks that he's, that he's working for the kingdom of God and, and for the Lord's will. He is, in fact, working at cross-purposes to such things. Oh, Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Tony. Dr. Anders, thanks for your show, which I listen to nearly every day. That word you constantly use, doxion or doxion, I can't find that word anywhere. Can you please explain it? Um, Don't know that word. Are we talking Uh, about doctrine? uh, I don't know. Could be. Uh, What he wrote was D-O-C-T-I-O-N. And any idea? No, the only thing I could think of was maybe maybe uh, he's referring to doctrine, yeah. D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E, doctrine, which refers to teaching, Catholic could, teaching. Could be. Tony, if you're listening, uh, write us again. We'd love to uh, clear that, clarify that for you. Let's go to uh, one of our uh, calls now from the EWTN listener comment line. Yes, my name is Tom from Michigan, and my question is, uh, do we have in our Catholic teachings a similar concept to the sense of divinity? That John Calvin taught. Oh yes, absolutely. The census divinitatis of John Calvin. We certainly do, and John Calvin didn't make that up. He got it from the Catholic tradition. So you know, the idea that that humans have a kind of innate knowledge of God. Yeah, that's that's absolutely Catholic tradition. Um, you know, the Book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. Uh, Paul, Saint Paul, writes in the Book of Romans that. Um, uh, that God's attributes and existence can be discerned from what has been made. 
the idea that we how that that uh, that the fool is the one who says in his heart there is no God. Yes, there's a kind of natural knowledge of God that is written into the fabric of human consciousness. Yeah, that's a Catholic doctrine. Now, uh, what you'll find in the history of Christian philosophy is that Calvinists will develop novel arguments for understanding the sensus divinitatis, mm-hmm. and they will they will. Uh, construe it in ways that are different from Catholic epistemology. Epistemology is a theory of knowledge. Uh, So famously, uh, modern Reformed epistemology, Reformed, is that's the tradition that comes from John Calvin, attempts to argue that it is is rational to assert the existence of God without evidence. That there's a—it's called—what's called a properly basic belief— um, that is not the way Catholics construe it. Catholics generally uh, believe that our knowledge of God is derived from evidences, right? And that you can give rational arguments for God's existence. That's different from the way the Reformed construe it. But but that there is an innate knowledge of God or a natural knowledge of God, yes, both traditions hold that. All right. Thanks so much for your call uh, to the EWTN listener comment line, which, by the way, is open 24 hours a day. Uh, So if we're not doing a live show, consider that uh, listener comment line open and ready for your call. And then uh, when we're checking it out, you know, checking out the machine the next day, then we'll go, oh, oh, that's that's a good one for call to communion. This is a good one for open line. You know, while I was thinking about it, uh, a a, a text occurred to me that might be of interest to our previous caller. Um, Dr. Larry Feingold at Kenrick Theological Seminary has a a magisterial text, small m magisterial text, Uh Um, called uh, the natural knowledge of God according to Saint Thomas, mm. uh, and it is a it's a discussion of different philosophical theories about how the sensus divinitatis operates in in Catholic philosophy. You might want to go take a look at that. Very good. Call to communion on this uh, Tuesday after Christmas here on EWTN Radio. A question now from Jerry who says, "Hey there, Doctor Anders. Thanks for taking my email." With your extensive knowledge and background with the Holy Catholic Bible and other religions, in your opinion, is the Ark of the Covenant still in existence, hidden somewhere, waiting to be found? Or do you believe it was destroyed thousands of years ago in a war of biblical proportion? Also, how would you describe the power that the Ark contained that could level a mountain or destroy an army? similar to a nuclear detonation or something well beyond our understanding. Thank you, Jerry. Um, yes, thank you very much. Appreciate it. So um, I'm, not a, I'm not a biblical, biblical archaeologist. That's not my area of specialty. But to the, to, to the extent that I know anything about biblical archaeology, there is no evidence for the ex- current existence of the Ark. Okay. All right. Um, now... You can't ever produce evidence of absence. You can't prove a universal negative. Give right. me the evidence that there is no ark anywhere. Well, that's impossible to do. All I can do is say there is no evidence of it existing con- con- contemporaneously with you know, us right now. Um, in terms of the question about the ark's power, your description of the ark seems to have more in common with the Harrison Ford film Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. than it does with the biblical account. Because yeah. it's clearly the way the ark is portrayed in sacred scripture, it doesn't have an innate power or authority that's other than that which is derived from the will of God. And so, you know, God doesn't just automatically grant victory to the army that carries the ark, whatever Harrison Ford's Nazis may have said to the contrary, right? It, it very much is tied to 
Israel's identity as the covenant people and their own right worship. And so sometimes they presume on God and carry the ark into battle, and then they lose the ark because they went against the will of God. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much uh, for your email. Reminded me just now, David, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now, the last scene in that movie as they're putting the box in the warehouse and the camera keeps pulling back and pulling back and pulling back, and it's like thousands of things that we'll never know. Oh, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. All right, call to communion here on EWTN. Here's one now from Veronica. Dr. Andrews, the only problem that I find is that the Catholic faith continues to ignore scriptural evidence of animal immortality. I have researched this topic for over six years now. Luther and Wesley both believe that animals have eternal life. Their basis, Scripture. Catholics continue to state that animals only have a mortal soul, not an immortal soul. Animals have to suffer because of original sin. They didn't do anything wrong. I am a practicing Catholic, but I refuse to believe it is moral to use animals for any testing which inflicts so much pain on them. One theologian who wrote a book about animal immortality believed that animal sacrifices were done because the Hebrew culture was dark and dismal. And in many scriptures, God stated he never wanted animal sacrifices or that they were pleasing to him. How can we even be sure God approves of using animals for food? After all, could it just be a practice that the Jewish people started and not really be God-ordained? The words of Moses, not God. Check Wisdom 12.1, where it states God's incorruptible spirit is in everything. Thank you, Veronica. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the questions that you raise. Uh, I have to tell you, I'm a bit skeptical of the claim that Scripture teaches the immortality of animals. Um, you know, the Scripture speaks in in a figurative way many of the psalms about animals praising god um, but it also speaks about mountains and stars praising god and so i don't think that we have to interpret those texts to mean that there's a kind of conscious intentional praising of god that mm. animals do okay um and i have there are some animal rights activists that want to infer from the reality of animal praise uh, that that means, you know, conscious, uh, intentional praise flowing from an immortal soul. And I think that's a stretch. I think that's just beyond what the text actually says. So, I, you know, you'd have to argue the case with me that Scripture teaches that. It doesn't seem to me at all obvious that that's the case. Um, in terms of God giving permission to eat animals, um, Genesis chapter 9, verse 3 says explicitly, you can eat them. That's what it says, right? Yeah, and of course, yeah. the, the, the rites of sacrifice in the Old Testament presume the eating of the flesh, and we have evidence in, in the New Testament of Christ consuming animal food. Now, um, that being said, uh, I actually gave up eating meat you know, yes, you multiple did. years ago, and I'm sympathetic to a lot of the, even though I didn't do it for ethical reasons, I did it for health reasons, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the arguments that ethical vegans bring forth mm-hmm. uh, uh, against the eating of meat because they have objections to the way animal uh, husbandry and processing, meat processing is handled in the modern world. and They think it's cruel and this sort of thing. And I, I think there's some truth in some of those criticisms. And, and uh, this Catholic faith does teach that animal cruelty is wrong. It's, it's, it's immoral to, to treat animals cruelly. And so yeah. it's... Uh, you know, if you if you wanted to refrain from eating meat because you felt like a particular 
country or, 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 or industry was doing a bad job with it, that's fine. That's within your, the rights of your conscience to do that. Sure. Uh, but to categorically say no one can ever eat meat, period, end of paragraph, is to go certainly beyond the Catholic tradition and beyond the Bible. Veronica, thanks so much for your e- email. And if Veronica is hearing us today and wishes to give us a call on a future show, Love to talk with her, right? Absolutely. And we could swap vegetarian recipes, man. There you go. All right. It's a call to communion here on EWTN. Have you visited Podcast Central? This is something that EWTN has cooked up, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, we have not only the programs that we do here at EWTN, like Call to Communion, Open Line, Women of Grace, all the other ones, but we also have a whole bunch of podcasts. I think there's over 30 or 40 of them now from uh, various partners of ours uh, really all over the world. And one of those is called the Catholic MomCast, which brings you all things faith, family, and fun from a Catholic perspective, from the latest news news in our community to the latest trends in our homes and the church. Check it out, Catholic MomCast, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all absolutely free at EWTN's Podcast Central. Visit EWTN.com radio and then click on the word podcast and you will see it. There's a very cool graphic of a, golly, a 1940s uh, locomotive. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Anyway, check out everything there at EWTN.com radio and then click on podcasts. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to another one of those phone calls we received overnight during the, on the uh, EWTN listener comment line. Yeah, hi, my name's Clay. Uh, I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, I'm an Episcopal, so I'm not Catholic. Uh, my question is, what exactly gives the Catholic priests this intermediary uh, power, so to speak, that, that other factions of Christianity don't have? Because, you know, I came to know... Christ and my life changed 100% through Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I could not 100% disagree more uh, that I didn't that I did not have a very powerful connection to God as a result of a spiritual experience as a result of taking the steps through Alcoholics Anonymous. And my my question there is exactly what gives the Catholic priest that power? Because I absolutely do feel God, and uh, I've, I've noticed that a, a very human problem with that no human power has been able to stop in my life, was taken away. Yeah, thanks. I profoundly appreciate the question. However, the question misconstrues the Catholic teaching on clerical authority. So for for Catholics to believe that priests have a unique uh, uh, mediation or a unique intercessory power does not at all imply that there are no other forms of intercession and mediation. In fact, the Catholic position is that literally every particle of the universe mediates God's presence, and, and, and potentially salvifically, right? That a person might uh, be deprived of almost any kind of contact, except maybe the most mundane uh, material contact with a rock, <laughs> and that a mere rock is enough to elicit a knowledge of God and a desire to know God and, uh, and in good faith and sincerity to reach out to God with the help of grace and to ultimately be reconciled to God. That you could get that out of a rock is Catholic teaching. Um, and, uh, and, and far more so when mediated by charitable and virtuous people such as you're likely to meet in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. So mm. it's no part of the Catholic faith to say 
that you don't know God. That, that this, we, don't, we don't even presume to go there, right? And so if you tell me that you've had a transformative experience of grace and you were able to overcome uh, you know, horrible afflictions and addictions and that you sense the presence of God, far be it from me to, 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 to deny that to you. Of course, I mean, I'll concede that. Wonderful, fantastic, great, good for you, good for God, go God, yay. Right? No objections. What the Catholic Church believes, however, is that uh, Christ established the Church uh, as a particularly important sort of um, uh, principal form of mediation, not the only form of mediation, but the principal form of mediation, um, for a variety of reasons that within the Church, because of the various gifts that Christ gave her, that she could teach clearly and without error the means of salvation. Now, I would argue that the truths that helped you in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous are in fact Catholic truths, right? But in the Catholic faith, uh, you, you have those truths writ large, as it were, and with with a with a with a divine seal of approval, right? So that you have certainty about them. And there are other truths as well that may not be taught back all ex anonymous mm-hmm. that are also present in the Catholic Church. Church teaches that the Catholic faith provides means of grace, not just truth, but actual means of grace, means of getting that truth deep down in the heart in a transformative way, right? In particular, the sacraments of the Church. Um, that that Christ instituted, um, and uh, and so that the, the church is the most manifest, uh, public, objectively identifiable way of coming into union with God, but not the only way, and uh, and specifically to celebrate the sacraments, Christ entrusted this, especially the Eucharist, to the apostles and their successors, the bishops. So there's a direct line of succession from the foundation of the church by Jesus. Uh-huh to the present-day bishops of the Catholic Church and their collaborators, the, collaborators, the priests, uh, for that celebration, so that we can have certainty, right? So that we can know that we have a genuine sacrament that was established by Jesus. But it doesn't mean there's no form of mediation outside the Church. Very good. And uh, by the way, God bless everybody that works with Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely. They do fantastic work. It's called a Communion here on EWTN. Here's a timely question. My cousins joined us for Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, but they don't normally go to church. We have discussed the importance of regular Sunday Mass attendance, uh, but they haven't changed their practice. How can I encourage them without nagging? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. So, um, you know, without, without nagging or without, uh, you know, making it a kind of rebuke, um, I think the best thing you can do is to let your own frequent participation in the Catholic sacraments be reflected in the character of your life and your charity. Mm, And if there is a difference in the way you live from the way their neighbors live, uh, and it's one that they find attractive, then they may be impelled to follow you in your your practice of the Catholic faith. Let's hope so. Here's a question now. Uh, This is from Beverly, who says, according to Luke 4.38, we are told Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So, as St. Peter, our first pope, was married, why are our priests and popes not allowed to get married? That makes no sense to me. Please, can you explain it? Thank you, Beverly. Yeah, so there's nothing in sacred scripture that suggests that Peter took a wife after he became pope. That's true. Nothing that says that. Um, He had a wife when Christ called him. But when she died, and I'm not sure, I mean, Peter died, I'm not sure who died first, Peter or his wife, but just for sake of argument, if Peter's wife had died, uh, Scripture would have forbidden him to take another one. One and, and done. And, and Paul talks about that explicitly in the pastoral epistles. He says, let the bishop be the husband of but one wife. Mm-hmm. 
right? And so what the, 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 what the church says precisely is that once you are ordained, you cannot take a wife. But there are married Catholic priests, priests who have brought a wife you know, with them, as it were, to their ordination. Uh-huh. Now, um, in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, uh, that's actually fairly common. So you'll find a, a quite, a, quite a large number of married priests. In the Latin rite, the Western rite of the Catholic Church is less common, and there are some specific circumstances in which it's allowed. Mm-hmm. So you do have married priests in the Western rite, but not as few, not as many. Um, but the preference is for a celibate clergy because Christ himself exemplified that form of life and described it as the more perfect way. So that's why there's a preference. Okay. Appreciate that. Beverly, thank you so much uh, for your email. Call to communion on this day after Christmas here on EWTN. This one is from James. Dr. Andrews, I can't thank you enough for all that you're doing for our Catholic faith and Christianity. Here's my question. Was Jesus in heaven with God the Father and the Holy Spirit all this time since creation? If so, what was Jesus' role when Lucifer and one-third of the angels fell? Was Jesus with St. Michael in the battle against Lucifer? Yeah, thanks. So let's draw a distinction um, between the second person of the Trinity mm-hmm. before the Incarnation and the second person of the Trinity after the Incarnation. So Catholic doctrine is that God is a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who exist eternally. But the Incarnation is the event where the second person of the Trinity assumes a human nature in time. Hmm. And so, while the second person is eternal, the incarnation is not eternal. It took place, you know, in a particular time and place. So, in human history, there was a time before the incarnation. So, we can talk about the Trinity from all eternity, but Jesus is the name of our incarnate Lord. So, we wouldn't, we, 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 we wouldn't be speaking precisely if we said Jesus existed from all eternity. We'd say the second person of the Trinity who assumed human nature and became the son of, of Mary and the adopted son of Joseph, Jesus, existed from the first century, right? Um, so conceived in that way, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of the second person in all eternity as somehow separate from God, because he is God, God is a triune being. And so the, uh, uh, when, when Satan rebelled against God, he rebelled against the Blessed Trinity, you know, not just against the person of Jesus. Mm, okay, very good. And uh, here's an interesting question from Elisa Ann. This is rather lengthy. Hopefully we can get through it. Thank you for all the phenomenal content re- you create and the wisdom that you and knowledge that you share. It's a blessing to me. I have a traditional Catholic friend who claims that while the gates of hell will not prevail against the, ca- the church magisterium, many Vatican II liturgical practices and disciplines are erroneous, irrelevant, and lead us astray. Some examples include the removal of the altar rail, women not veiling, receiving in the hand, not using Gregorian chant, or having God bless America as the recessional hymn on Independence Day. She claimed these are all human errors and liturgical abuses, which contribute to the crumbling of our society and church community. Further, she shared that saints don't typically attend Novus Ordo Mass and encourage me to validate what I hear from my priests and call to communion in original church council saint documents as I'm receiving erroneous interpretations. I feel torn. Some of this seems to conflict with what I thought about Novus Ordo. I want I want to believe whatever is true, and I'm happy to adjust my thinking to better follow Christ, but I'm saddened and surprised to hear the perspective that the church is being 
quote, infiltrated by evil. Thanks, Elisa Ann. Yeah, thanks. So I have a question for you, Elisa Ann. Was there an altar rail on Holy Thursday in the upper room when the disciples received Holy Communion from Jesus? Good point. I don't think so. Mm -mm, Did they sing God Bless America at the recessional? (laughs) I, I don't think so. What was the other charge? Oh, golly. Um, we had removal of altar rails. The, um, women not veiling, receiving in the hand. Okay, receiving in the hand. Um, it's ambiguous how the disciples received at, in, on Holy Thursday in the upper room, but I can tell you that reception in the hand is very ancient. Uh, if you read Cyril of Jerusalem's catechetical lectures from the late 4th century, and he's a doctor of the church, um, he he gives specific instructions for how the laity are to receive in the hand. Um, uh, you didn't raise reception in both kinds, but sometimes that gets raised, you know, because the traditional practice is reception in one kind only. And it's interesting to note that Pope Galatius uh, actually mandated reception in both kinds. Mm. Um, uh, uh, so so many of these things that are claimed as uh, as a uh, 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 Innovations of the Second Vatican Council are actually a lot older than the Tridentine Mass in yeah. one form or another. But, you know, be, beyond all of that, beyond all of that, what really seems to be at the root of this question is the idea that if you get the liturgical form wrong, that you are somehow blaspheming or alienating yourself from God or you're going you're gonna to make the grace not flow. And I would challenge you or your friend to read the Gospels and see if that's the way Jesus talks about the ethical life and the life of grace. Or if, by contrast, Jesus' main polemical target in the Gospels was precisely that attitude, right? Uh. To, to, to criticize those who would make of the spiritual life an argument about times and places and forms and rights, rather than the transformation of the, of the character of the moral life and charity. All right. And Elisa Ann, thank you so much for your email. We hope that uh, sheds a little light on the subject. Dr. David Anders, Merry Christmas. Thanks, Tom. Merry Christmas to you. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, which is, of course, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime at EWTN.com forward slash radio. Have that uh, posted for you ASAP. And uh, don't take that tree down just yet. There's still a little, uh, little bit of the Christmas season to go. On behalf of all of us here at EWTN, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.